Why were you late to the start of the show today, Brady? I was late to the start of the show today, Gray, because I was watching a game of football. Soccer. It was a game of soccer between Chelsea and Manchester City. A plus American accent there. Yes, thank you. You would blend right in with the natives. I would. So we'll jump straight into Sportsball Corner here. We'll jump straight in. Mm -hmm. It's a final. It's called the League Cup Final. It's one of a few finals that happen each year where you actually get to win a trophy. It's like a knockout trophy. So two teams you probably have heard of were playing, as I said. Chelsea from London and Manchester City. Two of the big famous teams. Yeah. And just by way of background, this actually becomes relevant. The Chelsea manager, like the boss of the team, has been under a lot of pressure in the last few weeks because Chelsea hasn't been performing very well and everyone thinks he's going to get sacked. He's like a man in crisis. His leadership has been questioned, right? Okay. Coming into this game. Everyone thought Manchester City were going to absolutely smash them because about a week or two, they beat them 6-0 in another game. So everyone thought Chelsea was going to get slaughtered in this game. So I was watching it before we start recording. And it ends up the game is nil-nil. So it goes to extra time, half an hour of extra time. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, fair enough. I've got to record with Gray. I'm probably not going to see the very end of the game. And if it stays nil-nil after extra time, they'll have one of these penalty shootouts, which I know you're familiar with. You're familiar with a penalty shootout in soccer. Yes. Yes. All right. So I thought, I'll just put the game on my iPad and if it goes to a penalty shootout, I'll watch it while Gray and I are recording. That's what? no big deal, just so I can see what's what? happening. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Huh? How often are you watching sports while we're recording a show? Rarely. Rarely. Rarely is way more than the zero times I would have expected that answer. Actually, watching the game, I probably don't do, but I do keep an eye on scores, like on you know Twitter and websites and stuff, if it's an important game. <sighs> I can't believe that. Brady. You always have my 100% focus. <laughs> it's very rare. It's very rare. Anyway, that's what I thought I was going to do. Okay. And just as we were about to start recording, in the last minute or two of the game, before the penalty shootout started, just when I was about to call you, they were still playing, it was still nil-nil, something kicked off, something was going on in the game, and I couldn't tell what it was. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And this coach of Chelsea, the guy under pressure, just completely lost the plot. And he was storming all over the place, furious, and it looked like he was going to walk out of the stadium. And the cameras were pointing in unusual directions, and the players were doing unusual things. And I couldn't tell what was going on. But it looked weird. Right. So that's when I said to you, Gray, I need to find out what's going on and watch the end of this game. Mm-hmm. I couldn't figure out what was happening, and it would be too distracting for me to have recorded. Right. That's when I presume that you canceled the FaceTime call that I was about to accept. Yes. I would have got off the call anyway, because I had to find out what was going on. I went downstairs and I rewound my TV, and it was something I have never, ever seen in a soccer game before, and I don't think I've ever seen in a sports game before. Certainly a very, very rare thing happened. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd share it with you. Well... Now I need to know too. What was this tremendous event? All right. So the goalkeeper for Chelsea, right, he started having all these like cramp and needing treatment every few minutes. But I didn't think much of that because that's like a normal tactic. If you're like the underdog in a game and you want the game to go to penalties, sometimes you'll milk the clock by pretending to be injured. 
So I was thinking, oh, okay, he's just milking the clock. But then it began to look like, actually, maybe he is, you know, starting to get cramped. This game's gone 120 minutes. It's longer than a normal soccer game, and he's probably getting a bit tired. Other players get cramp in these situations. Mm. And another thing that often happens at the end of soccer games, if you still have a substitute player you're allowed to use, and you've got a goalkeeper who is a specialist at saving penalty kicks, Mm -hmm. sometimes in the last minute or two of the game, you'll substitute your goalkeeper and you'll put on your penalty specialist so right. that he will be the player in the penalty shootout and he will save the goals. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. So the manager, the coach of Chelsea, obviously decides, look, this guy looks like he's injured. And Chelsea do have a very good penalty saving goalkeeper who was on the bench. So they got him to take off his tracksuit and warm up and signal to do a substitution. And the referees held up all their boards they do when there's a substitution. And the new goalkeeper was waiting on the sideline to come on to replace the ailing smaller goalkeeper who they wanted to take off mm-hmm. and this goalkeeper because it was a final and it was his big chance to you know be a hero in a penalty shootout he just refused to come off he saw what the coach was doing and the, the referee was holding up the board saying substitution time and he just waved it off and he wouldn't leave the field the referee obviously <laughs> didn't know what to do the coach didn't know what to do none of the players knew what to do this guy was just refusing to do it okay i didn't know that was a possibility neither did i (laughs) but it suddenly made me realize what are your options you can't physically send on police to take him off presumably well i mean look i'm a very calm person but this sort of situation if i was the coach presumably you've been hired to be in charge of this team you're a man under fire as well you're a man under intense pressure because of all this media speculation excellent additional factor that you're including here but yeah if you are the coach these players, these are but pawns in your chess game. <laughs> well, yeah. And so I think I would go from zero to furious in about half a heartbeat if I was trying to move a piece on the chessboard and the piece objected. This is not your role here. You don't get to decide that's not how this works. You know, Your description of it is that this is not a thing that has ever occurred before. But if I was the coach, I think I would immediately be getting security to pull this guy out of there. Like, it's not your call. You don't get to hold up this whole game because you don't want to go along with this decision that's not yours to make. Security, get him out of there. That's really interesting that you react that way because when this coach, his name is Mauricio, sorry, Mm -hmm. he completely lost the plot. Like, he was banging his chair and he almost walked out of the stadium and he was banging the wall and he was really angry. And Mm -hmm. I even thought he was maybe overreacting. So to hear you say that you would be really angry, someone who cares not a jot about sport, Sort of makes me think, oh, yeah, he probably was a lot angrier than even I realised. Do you have more sympathy for him in this situation now? (laughs) I do a bit now. At the end of the game, before the penalty kicks, the teams like get together in a little huddle and have one last tactic talk before the shootout. Mm -hmm. Like the Chelsea players were having to restrain Sari from this goalkeeper. (laughs) Like he was like, he was still so (laughs) mad at him. And they're just about to start this important procedure to decide who wins the cup. So the reason I said to you, I have to see this out now is Mm. I had to actually see what happened in the penalty shootout because obviously maybe this goalkeeper was about to become a hero. And if this goalkeeper was the hero and say, you know, did the important save that won them the trophy, well, it would cast everything in a completely different light. Mm -hmm. But what do you hope happened? Well, what I hope happened is security removes the goalkeeper. (laughs) They put in the specialist, which is exactly what you want in any situation. It's what 
the whole concept of civilization hinges upon is specialists. You can't do that, Greg. You can't make a substitution after the game has ended, though, and the final whistle had blown. You can't change the players then. It's against the rules. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The original goalie was not removed, and what, the clock was just still running? The clock was still running, and eventually the referee said, well, if he can't come off, there's nothing I can do. And the referee kind of nulled the request for a substitution, and they played another two minutes, and then he blew the final whistle. So there was like two or three minutes oh, when man. this goalie stayed in his goal and they just kept playing. And the manager was just losing the plot. Like He was just like off on the sidelines, banging his head against the wall. The specialist goalkeeper who thought he was going to come on was just kind of sitting there stunned, thinking, oh, I thought I was about to have a glory moment. And okay. No one knew what was going on. And then time ran out, so the referee blew his whistle. You can't make any changes then. Okay. And he was the goalie. Do you know what I hoped would happen? What? Because this is allowed. I was hoping the manager wouldn't let the goalkeeper be the goalkeeper, be the goalie, because he could have anointed one of his other on-field players to be the goalie and said, you put the gloves on and the colourful shirt mm. and you try and save the penalties, which would be ridiculous because it's not a goalie, but it would have been a right up yours to the guy. Mm. But there would have been like a fight on the field then. It would have been amazing, but that's not what happened. The goalie got to stand in the goals and do the shootout. Also, so in this, in this, the manager is the person who owns the team, right? Just to be clear on the roles here. No, he doesn't own the team. He's an employee of a higher power, but he is <laughs> okay. the- So there's a mysterious consortium that owns the team, but the manager is the representative of that consortium on the- Yeah. I mean, in the case of Chelsea, it's owned by a billionaire called Roman Abramovich from Russia. Okay. All right. This is too specific now, right? Yeah. <laughs> shady group, whatever. There's like yeah. a level of abstraction. The gods own the, the team and the manager is the representative of them. on. But the, okay. for all intents and purposes, the manager is the ultimate power for a soccer team, unless okay. he gets sacked by the corporate owners of the club. Well, my thought process here is the wrath of the gods must rain down upon the goalie. <laughs> and I mean that because it's like a challenge to the structure of the environment that he is in. And I would think tremendously corrosive to the concept of a team and team sports. Like presumably the reason that you have a coach is that the team itself can't make hard decisions sometimes. And so that's the purpose of that role. And then, like, the manager is then overseeing these two groups. So if you can make a substitution with another player on the field, I think if I was the manager, I would totally make that call. Because yeah. you want to send a message from now until the end of time to players, like, you follow instructions. This is what you're supposed to do here. I didn't know this was an option. That is 100% what I would do. You're saying that that's not what happened. So then yeah. all I can hope is that the universe is just and the goalie was completely humiliated and didn't save a single penalty shot. That would be my hope in this situation. He did save one, but he also let one in that he should have saved. He stuffed up and he lost. Okay. They lost the shootout. So justice did reign. Okay. I can accept that. I would like yeah. it better if it was pure humiliation, but that's acceptable. It wasn't pure, but he did miss an easy one. He did miss an easy one. I mean, I'm reading some of the comments that are coming now through on like the BBC commentary, and one of the BBC's like pundits is saying, Kepper, this is the name of the mm. goalkeeper, should never play for Chelsea again. That should be his last performance in a Chelsea shirt. It's a disgrace. I've never seen anything like it. I'm with that guy 100%. But what do you think, Brady? Do you think this is too far? 
He says, why weren't the players dragging Kappa off anyway? <laughs> I don't know. And another comment I just saw online saying, a friend of mine raises a good point. Do the rules need to be changed? What's to stop every 14-year-old across the land refusing to come off now when their coach tries to bring them off? They've just seen it happen in a League Cup final. Right. Anarchy will reign in the land. That's right. why you need the boot of justice to come down on the neck of the player. Players are famously petulant when they're substituted and throw their shirt away and disgust as like a passive-aggressive show to the coach that they disagree with the decision. But I've never seen one just say, no, nah, I'm staying on the field. So Yeah, I mean, look, if you as a player want to do some kind of passive-aggressive action like that and show yourself as a child to the world, you go right ahead, as long as you keep moving off the field. But... Yeah, to actually just boycott and to stay on the field, that seems outrageous to me. But I feel like you don't think it's that outrageous. Or are you still just in shock from having seen it? It's shock. I think it is outrageous. I think he should be sacked tomorrow. I think the goalkeeper should be sacked. No question. I mean, actually, it's particularly famous at Chelsea Football Club that when a coach, like they call it, you know, losing the dressing room, when the players no longer respect the coach behind closed doors, that's normally when things start going wrong at a club. And it's always the coach that gets sacked because of it because you can't sack all the players. That makes sense. That's why you have the layer above the coach. The idea of the player revolt is not unheard of, but to actually do it in a packed stadium, in a cup final, in front of 80,000 people at Wembley, it was amazing. So that's why I was late to start the podcast. Today's episode of Hello Internet is brought to you by Ting. Ting is the nationwide mobile phone service that does things easily and is almost certainly going to save you money. Instead of having a set monthly data plan for your phone, Ting lets you pay for just the actual amount of data and text that you use every month. And because of this, you're probably going to save money with Ting compared to a service that you have to buy more data for that you don't use, like just in case so they don't hit you with a giant overage fee. No, with Ting, you pay for what you use. And for the average person, their mobile phone bill on Ting is going to be just $23 a month. Whatever phone you're currently using will almost certainly work with Ting. You just need to get a SIM card from their store. Now, to try out Ting, you're going to go to hi.ting.com, which I have to say, Ting, is an amazing offer code URL that's great to say. Hi.ting.com. When you go to hi.ting.com, which is spelled T-I-N-G, by the way, you can get $25 off your bill or $25 off a new phone in the Ting store. And again, considering that the average person pays just $23 a month, you're basically getting your first month at Ting for free. Oh, also, did I mention the best part, that they don't lock you into a year-long contract? That kind of thing I just refuse to have on my phone. No, with Ting, you pay for the data that you use, and you use it as long as you want to. They're not like other cell phone companies that lock you in forever. You can give it a try, see if you like it, switch in. It's super easy. So once again, go to hi.ting.com and get $25 off your first bill or $25 off a new phone. Thanks to Ting for supporting the show, and thanks to Ting for having such an easy and fun URL to say. Hi.ting.com. Hi.ting.com. Go try it out. I have a complaint to Lodge Brady. Excellent. Gray lodges a complaint. <laughs> yeah. What's new there? We've discussed spoilers on this podcast numerous yeah. times low these many years yes and i have a new one that i'm going to add to the list because sometimes we have this philosophical discussion about what is a spoiler hmm. and the one i want to add to the list which is really annoying me currently is netflix content warnings right 
So Netflix traditionally, when you start to watch a show, it flashes up on the top something like violence or sexual content to give parents a heads up for what they might see in the show. Yeah. But I have noticed over the years, over time, it went from these broad categories into becoming more and more specific. And I knew one day this was going to happen, that they were going to have something specific enough to irritate me. Right. And it is now the case. I'm working my way through a Netflix show. Yep. And every time I go to play an episode, it has this, I should take a picture of it, hilariously long string of content warnings across the top. And the very last one is suicide that they put as a content warning. Right. I am now six episodes in to like a 12-episode miniseries. No one's committed suicide yet. And so every episode, all I keep thinking is, well, who's it going to be? I know one of these characters is going to kill themselves because Netflix tells me at the beginning of every single episode. And it's really bothering me. Now, just to get it out of the way, I don't have a problem with content warnings, but this is my complaint, Netflix. I am a grown human being. Can I somewhere, please, in your interface, tell you, hey, I can watch whatever I want because I have grown up and I can see these things. You don't need to treat me like I'm a child or as though there's a child in this house. Like, no, we don't need to do this. It's not only children who could be disturbed by depictions of suicide, though. Like, there are certain things that even adults may want a heads up. Like, I may be fine with all the violence in the world and all the sexual content in the world, but suicide, for example, might be a sensitive subject for me, or sexual content might be. Mm -hmm. Like, you might have specific things you try to avoid, while other things, it's like, bring it on, I'll I'll take what you've got. (laughs) So how do you deal with that? Well, we live in a land of technology, so I think there could be checkboxes. And there actually is, I'm on the reverse side of this, that there is one thing which, to me is a kind of content warning that I would want. Hmm. The content warning I would want is people sick in hospitals. (laughs) Yeah, my wife would want jellyfish. (laughs) (laughs) I still think my play that contains peanuts was the most specific warning I've ever seen. But (laughs) Yeah, but over the past couple of years, I have spent more time than I wish with my wife in a hospital. And it's like, boy, those are not fun environments. Nah. And we were watching, uh, oh, God, I can't remember what it was. It was some movie about the guy who like invents the iron lung. And it slowly dawned on me, like, oh, God, a lot of this movie is going to take place in a hospital. And that was the one where I'm like, you know what? I'm done. Yeah. If your movie has a lot of scenes in a hospital, I don't need to watch your movie anymore. Yeah. There's been a couple of times where we're watching a movie and, and I'm starting to be like, wait a minute, I think this might be a hospital movie. So I'm not going to watch this movie. So like, I understand the concept of like, people want content warnings. Yeah. But I don't think it's an unreasonable request to ask for a toggle to say, I don't need content warnings. I can figure out for myself if this is a movie that I don't want to see. I think what you're suggesting is already too complicated, but you could take it a step further and say, you could have like an interface on Netflix saying, don't warn me about anything except hospital sickness, or don't warn me about anything except jellyfish. So you never see content warnings unless it's going to be a jellyfish show. And then, frankly, 
you could make the content warning a lot bigger and a lot longer yeah. because Netflix is a little fast with those content warnings, yeah. right? It's like, listen, there's jellyfish. I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right across the center yeah. of the screen, you could put that up, but it's totally fine. Yeah. Like, again, I understand that all of these companies are, are always allergic to options and they don't want to put something in complicated. And I can't conceive of a universe where Netflix is going to let me pick like, oh, these content warnings I do want and those content warnings I don't. Yeah. I think it is not unreasonable to ask Netflix for a master toggle that says, don't show me content warnings. I'm a grown up and I can handle this. I'll take it all. I can take out whatever you got. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, then they'll get sued by someone who like gets upset by some. No, but put in one of those, uh, you know, put in one of those end user license agreements everybody pretends to read. If you want to unclick this button, you have to sign our waiver. Yep. That says you're not going to die of a heart attack if there's a jellyfish on the screen. Yep. I don't think that's an unreasonable request. And I especially don't think that's an unreasonable request if the trend is going to keep continuing that I have seen of more and more granular content warnings. In dramatic TV shows, suicide is often one of the real plot twists as well, isn't it? You know, that's often a a real device in drama writing. So Yeah, or there was another one that I was watching where it would have been more surprising, but there was a content warning for torture. Yeah. And again, the way I like to watch shows, there was nothing in the show to give you a heads up that the torture was coming. Yeah. And I'm willing to take that on me that like if I uncheck content warnings, sometimes there's going to be surprise torture. And like that's what's going to happen. Again, I found it annoying. Like, oh, I'm waiting for the torture to happen. And this would have been a different viewing experience. And the torture would have had the emotional impact that the director was going for had I not known that it was coming. Yeah. I think that this kind of warning is very different from the movie ratings, like PG-13 or yeah. R. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, R. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I know this is a serious movie. Yeah. Right? And then it's like, oh, PG-13. It's barely not a cartoon for children. Yeah. But you don't know what the details are, and that feels I, I fine. I think you're so. quite reasonable. I agree with you. I agree. Thank you, Brady. Can I give you a, uh, a technology complaint? Please do. Again, this is one that I I don't really have a request or a solution to it, because I see both sides of the problem, but it's just something I noticed before, so I thought I'd bring it up. And this is to do with Twitter. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, Twitter has the functionality that you can mute people. Right. And this is a feature that I have increasingly been taking advantage of. Mm-hmm. I have a, an ever-growing list of muted people. You're getting faster with those mute trigger fingers. I am, and it could just be my mood. It could be a whim. Mm-hmm. It could be just a, I'm not on a plane at the wrong moment. Right. <laughs> no malice to it. I don't want to block people. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've just been getting a bit trigger-happy on the mute. And then figuring out who to unmute is really difficult when you look at that list because you don't know why you muted them in the first place. The mute button is for life. Yeah. I mean, look. People on the internet, you need to know, when you interact with someone on Twitter, no matter what it is, you're always risking the silent mute. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, this is a thing. But because there are so many of them now, particularly some of them I've muted for excessive replying, Mm -hmm. so this exacerbates the problem. What I've now noticed on my Twitter is I'll sometimes do a tweet Right. And I'll see one reply, three replies, 10 replies. And I'll go, I wonder what people are saying. And I'll go to look at the replies. And sometimes I won't be able to see any of them. <laughs> so what Twitter does is it still tells you the number of people who are replying, but you can't see the replies. 
<laughs> and it reminded me a bit of that episode of Black Mirror. You know how in Black Mirror where they had that technology where you could actually mute humans and they just right. became like TV fuzz. Yes. So it wasn't like they were erased from the world. You still knew they were there, but yeah. you didn't know what they'd done wrong or who they were or what they were saying. That's what it's like Twitter for me now. It's like, I know they're there. I know they're saying things, but I can't hear or see what they're saying. And it's kind of a weird scenario. And I don't really... I wouldn't want it to be another way. I wouldn't want Twitter to make the reply count zero just for me when whole conversations were going on. But I also find it a little bit frustrating and annoying. I feel like this really does show how heavy on the mute button you've been. <laughs> yeah. Like, you've like, pow, 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 mute, 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 mute. You've done this so much that you can have these threads where you notice the disparity between how many people are replying and the number at the bottom. <laughs> it is a bit self-selecting too because... The sort of people I've muted may be people who are like really excessive repliers. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. There's the people who want to include you on these threads where they're having some conversation with their friends and for some reason they want to ah. CC you on every single one. I, I, I understand. But I, yeah. just, I still think that's funny that you notice that there's a disparity there. I have noticed it. I notice it often. But you don't want them to change the number to be the number that is what you see? I think that could cause problems too. I have no feature request. <laughs> I just have a complaint. <laughs> If you ever come back to the twits, right. then you can give me better advice. Amazon. Amazon HQ2. Interesting twist to the story, hey? Yeah, I'm hoping maybe you can tell me a little bit more about this because I just sort of caught this headline. I'm going by the Wikipedia description, but it seems that Amazon has cancelled their plans for the surprise second New York headquarters. Hmm. It's a little unclear to me exactly what has occurred. Like, I was trying to just read the Wikipedia description. It's like, protests against it? But it seems like Amazon was complaining that the politicians weren't backing them. But I don't understand because presumably that's where they got the deal. I don't know exactly what's going on here. But there is a plot twist. I've only read one or two articles about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. And I'm sure I'll upset someone. Mm -hmm. But my overriding feeling about this is... It makes me love Amazon a little bit <laughs> because you knew this was going to happen. You knew people were going to complain. All the NIMBY people were going to be not in my backyard and you're going to ruin our thing and they mm -hmm. shouldn't be getting the tax breaks and stuff like that. And it was, you knew this was just going to become a controversy and Amazon were going to have to see it out and there'd be this PR war. Mm -hmm. the politicians have to balance their desire for the project versus keeping the constituents happy. And there, it was just going to be a mess and Amazon right. were going to have to like wade through it to get what they wanted. It was probably an ambit claim. The people of Long Island City or whatever that place is called were probably thinking, this is good. At the end of this, they're going to bring the tax rebates down and we're going to get this and we're going to get that. And they were probably rolling up their sleeves for a big battle to see how hmm. much they could claw back. And Amazon have just said, stuff it, and just walked away. But they're like, oh, oh hang on. But, but, oh, it's genius. You know, it's, like, it's just they like have all the power. I mean, part of me thinks they must not have wanted it that much. It's not like they're going to put it somewhere else. They're just going to spread it out over multiple sites. But- Part of me also thinks, good on you. That is like, why do we want years of controversy? Fine. We'll just go somewhere else. Genius. It puts them in such a powerful position for any future things like this. Right. Because everyone fights for it and wants it. Mm -hmm. And then once they've got it, then they start their fight. Right. Amazon have basically laid down a marker saying, 
No, that's not how it works. If you want us, you want us. If you don't, you don't. But like, we're not going to beg. Good on them. I didn't really think of it in those terms, but that does make it kind of hilarious. I love that you're on Team Amazon for this one. I mean, I know Amazon, like a lot of people don't like them and I'm sure they're evil and I certainly have my complaints about them. But in this particular case, I think it's great. Imagine if Google and YouTube did this. Imagine if during the adpocalypse, Nestle said, ooh, we're not happy with your content and everyone's complaining, so we're going to suspend our ads for a month while we think about what to do. And then Mm. Google just said to Nestle, you can never advertise on Google again. We don't want you. (laughs) They'd suddenly be like, oh, my God, we can't advertise on Google ever again. This is like the most important place in the world to advertise and we're just locked out for life. (laughs) I think Google and YouTube could learn a lot from this. That is even better than what was my original plan for the adpocalypse where I thought YouTube should just hold strong and say like, okay, if you don't want to advertise, whatever, and just wait. But (laughs) the life ban, that's amazing. (laughs) Well, I guess they couldn't ban them for life, but they could just say that's fine, but we're doing things in... 12-month chunks, so you're off the platform for 12 months. We can't fiddle around with you being on and off all the time. It's an interesting way to think about it. And it really is the question of who has the power in the negotiation. Yeah. I think that is a really interesting point that perhaps New York politicians thought that once Amazon had announced it, that Amazon would feel like it was on the hook. But guess what? They don't. (laughs) I don't think it's really all the big politicians fault. I think they're a bit upset about it too. I think it's more at a lower level. I think it was the NIMBYs. Well, this is what like, just from reading the Wikipedia one, I was a bit confused about it because it sounds like the governor of New York was blindsided by this announcement that like the VP of Amazon just called him up and said, we're out. But like, here's the thing from my perspective, there's a, not like a law, but a general rule of thumb, which is the way things start is the way they continue. Yeah, I can imagine that if Amazon felt like it's already a thing that's turning into a big hassle before they've even broken ground, that is like, oh, the hell with this. You know, we'll go somewhere else where they actually want us and we'll just do what we want. And like, yeah, if it's a hassle now, it's going to be a hassle for the next 50 years. And forget this, like we're out of here. And look, I do see the other side of the argument, right? And it is a bit of a bully move by Amazon and they could negotiate or they could come to a negotiating table and be a better community member. I could make the other argument, mm-hmm. but I'm just so fatigued by every time there's a big announcement, all the negative stuff gearing up, you know, all the complainers complaining. Like it was just a little bit refreshing to not see Amazon play the game that Google and YouTube always say, you know, we'll do a review, we'll do consultation, we'll make it work. And there's this kind of dance that everyone dances. Yeah. And I kind of like that. Oh, thank goodness we don't have to do that dance. You think we're really bad? Fine. <laughs> Keep your little town. I almost wonder that Amazon has been under a tremendous amount of flack. It feels like in the past couple of years, like it's really ramped up this like anti-Amazon idea of like yeah. warehouses and for a whole bunch of things. Yeah. And I guess because I know I would feel this way. If I was the CEO of some billion dollar company and you feel like, you know, almost certainly these guys feel like they're doing good things in the world, you know, like they're creating like jobs and all the traditional stuff. Yeah. And you've been on the receiving end of people telling you that you're a horrible monster for a couple of years. I don't know. I would feel really tempted to be like, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to roll with this then. And yeah, like push your weight around in New York. Fine. Everybody already hates me. I'm just pulling out of New York and I'm making no concessions. Screw you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. If you're getting 
pummeled everywhere you go. Why walk into another one when you don't have to? There's a danger in a kind of over ostracization that like that you leave a player only moves you don't want them to make. Like, I'm not saying that's the case with Amazon, but I could just imagine that if I was the CEO and everybody's always yelling, I'd feel like, oh, well, I can't make these people happy no matter what I do. So, you know, let me take the upsides of being the tough guy instead of always trying to negotiate and play this game. So we've talked about Amazon HQ2 and it was sort of a disappointing story, but I'm enjoying this plot twist in it. And yeah. I'm really kind of hoping there's an HQ3 announcement. And then that one I really want to see. And everyone knows that it's on the table that Amazon can just walk away. <laughs> We're once again really pleased to be sponsored by CuriosityStream. Definitely go visit their website. And I challenge you not to be excited by the kind of teaser trailer I just watched. There were all sorts of amazing visuals of astronauts, hot air balloons, volcanoes, and also what looked like a caveman leaping through a forest. It was amazing. Curiosity Stream is a subscription streaming service. It offers over 2,000 documentaries and non-fiction titles from some of the world's best filmmakers, and it includes exclusive originals. Unlimited access starts from $2.99 a month. I was actually just watching this 45-minute film they have on solar eclipses, and I tell you what, it really captured the excitement of what an eclipse is like. It was beautifully filmed, like pro-level stuff. It got suitably excited about the Great American Eclipse of 2017, of course. But it also had some really interesting hardcore details, some stuff I didn't know much about, like including how the shape of the umbra, the shadow, is really complicated and changes as the moon moves across America. That was actually really well worth a look. It's a good film. Now, our listeners should go to curiositystream.com slash Internet and use the promo code HALLOWINTERNET during the sign-up process. That's Hello Internet, all one word, lowercase. That's going to get you a free 30-day trial. And it's also going to tell the curious people at CuriosityStream that you came from our show. And that's good news for us. Again, curiositystream.com slash Hello Internet. Promo code Hello Internet. Details are in the description as always. CuriosityStream describes itself as the world's first streaming service addressing our lifelong quest to learn, explore, and understand. And that sounds like a pretty noble goal to me. Our thanks to them for supporting this episode. Speaking of offices, mm -hmm. I am considering, but I'm probably not going to do it, but I'm considering it. But anyway, next week, I'm going to go and look at the, an office that, with the potential of starting to work in an office Ooh. rather than from home. And I wanted oh, wow. to get your advice or thoughts on it. I think it's definitely a thing you should do. I was really keen on it last week. I've gone off it a bit now, but I'm going to go and have a look in the middle of this week and see what I think. I'm going to go and look at a potential space. Okay, tell me, why were you keen on it? The reason I'm keen on it is like, there are changes to my life and, you know, my light bulbs and my work-life balance mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it that I want to make that I seem unable to make. And I was wondering whether or not having an office would force some of those things on me. I think maybe I'm someone who needs to have something forced on them rather than just having the mental willpower to do it. Can I ask what kind of things? Yeah, like the most obvious example being just my work hours, my start and finish times, my discipline of working. I think mainly things like that. Working from home as I have been for many, many years now, mm -hmm. probably approaching 10 years maybe, means you develop habits and you work weird hours that maybe aren't, aren't the best for me. 
And I wondered if having an office and being forced to work from an office, because the way a lot of my work is set up with all my big hard drives and my computer and stuff like that, I can't do a lot of my stuff portably. It's very hard for me to do all my video editing on the road. So having to leave the house to go and do my video editing might force some better habits on me. Do you mean in terms of working more or do you mean in in terms of turning off work when you come home? Probably more the turning off work, but also when I am working, working smarter. So at the moment I can start when I want and I can finish when I want and then I can go downstairs and watch a football match or something on Netflix and then I can go down the kitchen and make a sandwich and then I can play with the dogs or when I shouldn't be working and I should be resting at night, I can think, oh, I might go upstairs and my office for a minute and sit down at my computer and, oh, yeah, I've just had an idea for a little edit or effect I could do. And I could sit here and edit for three hours and mm-hmm. should I be doing that? I don't know. Like, So I wondered if having an office would make me f- stop, give me a hard stop and a hard start and also when I am working, make me less likely to drift off and find distractions and decide to re-alphabetize my books and... <laughs> You know, things like that. So why have you gone off it then recently? Because of all the advantages of working from home. Okay. And some of those things that I just portrayed as bad things can also be good things. And it's nice that I'm with the dogs and I can let the dogs out all the time. And, you know, it's good for them to have company. It's good for me that I can just go downstairs and sit in a lovely lounge room rather than just be stuck in some office with a kitchenette and bunch of people I don't know very well. And so you think you like a shared office situation? A shared office, but my own proper sealed office within it. Because one of the other things that appeals to me is socialization. Maybe I should have more humans around me. Because mm-hmm. sometimes I can go long time and not see another human. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, see, that's concerning because it feels like you're mixing the purposes of this environment. That is a secondary purpose. Okay. But it is part of the thinking. You know, it's like... You know, you're coming up with lists of pros and cons. Mm. The main reason is to affect a discipline on me and to unblur my work and home life. What's going to happen with the doggos? Well, the place I'm looking at is like less than five minutes from my house. So I can come home and let the doggos out for walks and wheeze and things like that. Okay. I would like one where I could take the doggos. I haven't asked if I could take them to this place, but right. I could take them with me sometimes as well. Okay. And have like, you know, a big bed for them there and stuff. But yeah. At the very least, you could sneak Audrey in under your coat. Oh, well, yeah. Who doesn't love Audrey? She can go where she likes, but. She could just walk in the front door of any building. <laughs> I like as well, for example, when I'm home alone for the weekend, as I am at the moment, I like that I can just say, all right, I'm pulling an all nighter tonight. Mm. And I can just come up to my office and I can edit until 2 a.m. And then just stagger down into bed when I'm done. Because no matter what people say about retraining the way you work, I definitely work better at night and can work longer and more concentrated at night. So I like pulling up a long night sometimes. I'll get a lot done. Once a week, I'll do a long night. And they're productive times for me. And part of me doesn't want to lose that. I like as well that I can get up and think, oh, I can't be bothered having a shower and getting dressed yet I'm going to go and work for an hour first. Mm -hmm. That's probably naughty and something that I could unlearn from having an office. That's part of both the pro and the con of having an office. But I see the negatives as well. And, you know, my office is very nice. You have a beautiful office. Like You have a great working space in that house. Yeah, and I wouldn't get a place anywhere near this nice anywhere. You know, I've got my lovely bookshelves and framed pictures and lovely shutters and lovely furniture and period features and... (sighs) 
fireplace and things like that. And I'm not going to have that in some industrial unit. This is very interesting to hear, Brady, because I'm trying to think about this as you. And Mm. while in general, to anyone who's listening to the show, if you're thinking about like you work from home and you're thinking about getting an office, I recommend that 10,000% as a thing to do. Yeah. I don't think it's a thing for you, Brady. Hmm. It might be something that you want to try, but I, I wouldn't be signing up to like a 12-month lease if I were you. Hmm. It is a couple of things. One of the things is either the more hours you want to work or the more randomly dispersed you want to work whatever hours you work, the more that leans on the scale towards a home office is for you. Of course, but I feel like I do that more than I should. And having a away office might pressure me to stop doing that. I think maybe that's like a bad habit of mine. Here's the thing. It may be, but life is full of trade-offs. And so like, here's what I was going to suggest to you. And then I realized as I'm thinking it through in my own head, oh, this is not going to work for a Brady. Because if, if the thing that you want to do is you want to have a clear separation between you know work life and home life, say, Hmm. is that you should get an office, but you also don't want to pick an office that's like a really comfy environment. Like you almost, you want a place that is is almost a little bit unwelcoming. Like that is what is going to encourage you to go there, do your work, and then leave, and then be done with stuff. That's interesting to hear, yeah. So what you don't want to do is make a cozy office. Right. But like everything I know about you, Brady, I just see you sitting in this antique chair at a fancy desk, (laughs) maybe at like a brandy tumbler in front of you, computer (laughs) mouse in the other hand, you know, crafting your videos, moon (laughs) memorabilia in the background. Like that is a Brady cave. And I think some of the work environments that I have spent time in as offices outside of my house would be environments that would make you terribly sad. Right. They're just not comfortable environments. But I I specifically like environments that I feel like I want to get the hell out of here, right? I want to go into my office at six in the morning and then leave by nine. And it's like, great, I got some work done and I am out of here. And, you know, I like having the pressure of, oh God, people are coming in and I hate all of them, so I've got to get this work done before like all of the office people show up. How is your time split between your home setup and your away office? So like, here's the thing: reason this is an interesting thing right now is, for various reasons, I have spent most of this year, starting in January, working from the home office. Hmm. This just happens to be a coincidence for a bunch of stuff. And I hate it. I really don't like working at the home office. How come? Because of the distractions of home or? I wouldn't say it's the distractions, but I want the same thing that it feels like you want in your life, which is the clarity of the borders. Separation of powers. Yeah. Like, what is this place for? And in an ideal world, I would want my home office to be barely more than a podcast recording studio and like occasional administrative work space. And then Hmm. my office outside the home would be for everything that's like a more creative project. But I happen to have had everything kind of collapse down into my home office for the past two months, really. And I just don't like it. I don't know if that work setup is 
for you. And I can totally understand also this thing where you say like you have late nights that work because that happens to me too is like I sometimes have nights where I just like you can just feel oh I'm going to be really productive tonight hmm. and then I'll I'll do the reverse like I go into the office way after everybody's left and I'll be there for a really long time and then I'll come home but it's a similar thing of I like that the office environment is not super comfortable because it feels like it helps focus you're doing work here and then you're leaving hmm. but I also think that like the nature of the work that you do actually it fits much better to have an office environment in which you're very comfortable because you're doing this like processing of the filming and you're doing the editing and like you're shaping the things that have been recorded like that feels to me much more like i would want to be in a comfortable work environment if that was the kind of thing that i was doing like if we imagine an alternate universe where i only made vlogs like the two i made on my youtube channel Hmm. I would totally then not feel the need to have an office outside the home if I did that because it just it feels like a very different kind of work. And that's probably the closest I ever come to doing what you do. So what's the sort of work that you like doing in an office? It's an intense kind of work. So it's things like writing. It's things like researching. And it's a couple other projects that fall into that kind of category, like right. very intense, self-contained generative kind of work and then stuff that's like administrative or editing i don't do in that environment so like i have that split so i would have thought kind of the opposite i would have thought like writing and researching would be the place you'd want to do in the in the smoking room with the brandy tumbler and the iris setter at your feet and the grind of like animating and the grind of administration would be the thing you'd do in the office where you just have to focus and not get distracted by a nice painting and stuff i have found that it just doesn't it doesn't work that way for me that yeah mm. if, if like oh i'm trying to do the research and reading in a comfortable environment it just doesn't work as well like it, it feels then like oh what am i doing am i reading for pleasure am i reading for work i do want to have those divisions it's hard isn't it? another thing that just occurred mm. to me is when my office is tidy and looking nice which isn't always <laughs> it isn't at the moment mm. but when it's at its nicest it is motivating as well because, like, why do I do this job? You know, I do it because I really enjoy creating things and all the altruistic reasons. Yeah. But I also do it because I have to earn money and I have to, like, have a career and, you know, be a successful person to put food on the table and be a proper human. Right. And coming up into an office that's nice and it's got a few little trophies and it's got a few nice little trinkets of my successes and it's got some nice little happy memories and pictures and hello internet things around the place and pictures from my adventures. It's almost like a little reminder as I start my day that I'm doing all right and things mm -hmm. are good. Like, you know, this is a nice place to come and work and I'm surrounded by all the little tokens of accomplishment. <laughs> and I felt like if I went into some really boring office with white walls and industrial carpet, it would feel a bit like, oh, <laughs> It'd feel a bit like, you know, the office, <laughs> you know, I'm working at Wernham Hog Stationery and I'm not working in my snug little room as a result of my minor triumphs. I totally get it. And one of the reasons I've been home much more these past couple months is I've been doing a lot of dog sitting. And in all seriousness, this is one of these things that it feels like 
a way to reap some of the rewards of a lot of the work that went into becoming a self-employed person is, oh, I can be home. Yeah. There's a chompers around. I'm still doing stuff. I'm not working as effectively as I would otherwise. But this is like taking advantage of a kind of upside that the nature of the work allows and was a thing that I was driving toward. So I completely get that. And I think, again, especially your office, I feel like really reinforces like the kind of person you are and the work that you do. So I, I totally mm. get it. And for me, part of like having the office that I go to is the horror of it. That to me is is like a little bit of the fear again. So it's right. motivating in that way. It's almost like a self-flagellation though, isn't it? Like I'm going to go and sit on this spike while I work so that <laughs> I'll do my work quicker and get the hell off the spike. I wouldn't put it that way, but that's, it's adjacent to that idea. Hmm. There is something to this that the comfort level of my office has an inverse proportion to the amount of what I would call quality work that I get done there. But I just don't think you're the same personality type. Tonight? Maybe I am. Maybe I just don't know it. You might want to try this, hmm. but I, the more I think about it, the less I think an office out of the house that's anything like an office would actually get you what you want. And here's the sad punchline to this. Hmm. I just think that you will always have a hard time with the boundaries of what is personal and what is work. And when are you working hmm. and when are you not? But I, I think that is the, the downside that is intrinsic to the same characteristics that got you into the position that you currently are. Hmm. I think you're a bit like, oh, this lucky coin that I have. I love the head side. But I hate that the tail side is here, right? And it's like, well, but you have this coin and that's the way it is. That's my personal guess. But don't get me wrong. I would totally love it if you got an office outside of your house and tried it for a while because I would be very interested to hear how that goes. That lucky coin analogy, that was worse than one of mine. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on with that one. That's why I'm moving, moving right <laughs> along. All right. I'll keep you updated. I'll let you know after I've looked at it how I, how I felt. Basically, I want to have an office that's away from the house, but really, really close. And is some like cute little loft in a barn conversion or something. Right. Like, I, I've got this like fantasy office in my head. Right. That is just like, you know, so lovely that you could almost want to be there as much as home. And that right there, I feel like is the fundamental problem that you want an office that you would love as much as your home office is like, oh no, then you're going to be there so much and you're going to defeat the whole purpose of the thing. Yeah. But when I came home, I would be home and like, I wouldn't be able to edit because all my hard drives were in a different building. Yeah. That is one advantage that you have is that mm. your video process requires a physical location. Yeah. I genuinely think that's a huge advantage. One of the frustrations that I have in my own working life is that I can do anything anywhere. Like it hardly matters where I am or it doesn't even really matter what machine I have with me. Like, did I bring an iPad? Did I bring a computer? It's like, ultimately I can do all of it anywhere. And so yeah. I always feel like I'm trying to create artificial boundaries that don't exist. So I'm, I am genuinely kind of envious that you could move a bunch of hard drives down the street and create for yourself a real barrier. But I don't know. I think you might end up just with the problem that you're there a lot and then you're not going to create the thing that you want, which is to feel relaxed at home that you're done with work, especially if you end up with an office that is so close. 
you might find yourself popping over quite a bunch. Yeah. Let me know what you do, Brady. This episode of Hello Internet is brought to you in part by Molecule. Molecule is the modern air filter. Now, if you have an air filter in your house, you might not know that those things were invented in the 1940s. This is the HEPA filter that most systems use. And in the last many, many decades, that technology has not changed very much. Molecule's filtering technology goes way beyond HEPA filtration to not just capture but completely destroy the full spectrum of indoor air pollutants, including those 1,000 times smaller than a traditional HEPA filter can trap. Now, you're probably thinking, a giant air filter is ugly, but I just recently got my molecule delivered, and this thing is pretty sleek. It very much looks like a product that Apple could have made. It's an unobtrusive, solid aluminum shell that can just sit in the corner of your room, purifying the air. And I'm very glad to have mine. I've unfortunately read up on some of the health hazards related to braking pads from cars. And living in the center of a city, apparently what gets into the air every time someone presses on the brakes in their car is not good. More than 80% of people living in urban areas that monitor air pollution are exposed to air quality that fails to meet the WHO recommendations. Now you might think, oh, I'll just close the windows. Well, spoiler, the indoor air can be up to five times worse than outdoor air, according to the EPA. And I don't know about you, but I spend most of my time indoors. So that's why I'm glad to have this molecule by my side. Breathing clean air can transform the way you sleep, particularly if you have allergies or if you are asthmatic. And Molecule customers have reported feeling energized and getting some of the best sleep they've had in years. Molecule's technology and research is backed by the EPA and was funded by the EPA and has been extensively tested by third parties and verified. So if filtered air in your house is something that you want, check out Molecule. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E. So you're going to go to Molecule.com and at checkout, enter Hello75. That's H-E-L-L-O and then the number 75, no spaces, to get $75 off your first order. That's go to Molecule, with a K, dot com, and at checkout, enter Hello75 to get $75 off your first order. Thanks to Molecule for supporting the show and for silently filtering the air in my home office. I should really probably get another one for my other office. So, Brady, I logged into YouTube the other day, and there was one of their little blue banners across the top of the system. You know? The blue mm. banners that let you know annotations aren't getting much love, so we're going to remove yeah. them. The yeah. little blue banners tell you something that you don't want almost certainly is going to happen. They're supposed to be like friendly little <laughs> nudges, but they're more like catastrophic changes to your whole career. I have been Pavlovian response to these banners of like, <laughs> right, you kind of suck in and go, oh God, before my eyes land upon the words and they are read into my head, like what is this going to be? It's especially scary if there's a date on them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this one had the underlined lines for a link. And this one was a little different. And so here's what it said. Help us make YouTube better for creators! Exclamation mark. We want to know how you really feel. Don't hold back! Exclamation mark. Take uh -huh. this survey. They should just listen to Hello Internet. <laughs> Well, I thought typing out a bunch of words 
on a survey for YouTube. I'm not going to do that. That sounds like a lot of work. That's the last thing I imagine you doing. Yeah. Instead, I'm going to screenshot this survey. And I Uh thought you and I could go through some of the questions. Okay. (laughs) Is this like a suggestion box or a satisfaction survey or what is it like? So this ended up being a pretty in-depth survey from YouTube where they were asking how much you agree or disagree with a bunch of statements. And then I'm very sure Bandersnatch-like they were sending you down different routes depending on how you answered and Ah. having a little follow-up question. So I tried to go through the survey as neutrally as I could for the most part, just to get the questions for us to take a look at. That's not a big secret one, then. We're allowed to talk about it, are we? The questions that I'm going to ask are perfectly fine in the public domain. Okay. And I'm genuinely curious, because we're very different kind of creators. I would like to Hmm. know how you think about some of these things as well. All right. There were maybe 100 questions. I'm just going to pick a few of them. A 100-question survey? So, Brady, question one. (laughs) Are you 18 years of age or older? I'm older. Okay, great. (laughs) You can now complete the rest of this survey. All right. Okay. Thinking about YouTube, in general, all caps, underlined, and bolded. Yeah. How strongly do you agree or disagree with the following (laughs) statements? Yeah. Question number one, right out of the gate, the big question. YouTube is the best place for creators. Like, in life, you mean? Like, just like... Brady, YouTube is the best place for creators. I don't agree with that. Oh, okay. Don't agree. Why? Well, because there are lots of things about it that cause me lots of frustration. And I'm sure there are like lovely creative spaces somewhere in the world like my fantasy loft in the barn conversion where creators can just sit and be happy all day long like you're thinking of this just in terms of physical spaces as well you're taking a very literal approach to this question (laughs) it's a very open-ended question i would say instagram is a better place for creators than youtube probably but not if you want to do what i do right if you want to do what i do you have to be on youtube but like instagram is a much easier more pleasant interface to use i mean the youtube interface is a bit of a moving feast and has its strengths and weaknesses it's mm-hmm. not the worst website in the world to use and it was worse in the past but there are better places mm-hmm. it's not the best place in the world for creators it's <laughs> certainly the place you have to be if you do what i do though what's your answer to that question so youtube is the best place for creators i didn't really interpret it in the way that you did and so <laughs> i put down agree and then YouTube immediately was like, hey, why don't you fill in this text box? Tell us why it is that you agree. I wonder if that text would have popped up if you'd put it was the worst place for creators. Well, yeah, I didn't get text boxes all the time. Tell me why you think it's the best place for creators. The answer was, there is no other viable alternative. Okay. So I think it's the best place in terms of like by default, but not because it's good. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I said, wasn't it? For me, it's the best place because I have to be there. But Yeah, so but I like, like, we gave the same kind of answer, but I was like, I guess I agree, but I agree not in the way I think that YouTube wants me to agree. No, like, I think like some chalet in the Swiss mountains would be a better place for creators to be. <laughs> I really love that you're imagining like a writer's retreat somewhere as, as like, where could we go? What would be the best place for creators? Well, they referred to YouTube as a place. If they said YouTube is the best website for video creators, mm-hmm. I probably would have said yes. Right. 
but they made it like it was this like campfire we're all sitting around. Right. If they want to make it like a place mm-hmm. for creators, mm-hmm. bloody creators, that word creators. If they'd even said, is YouTube the best place for video makers, I probably would have started leaning towards yes. <laughs> but it had to be creators. And suddenly I was imagining myself as like a painter sitting by a river or something. Right. Yeah, in your mm. new office. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Doggo at your feet. Next. If we've got 100 questions, we better crack on. No, no. I think that was one of the better ones. But they're following up with a few that I think are, you will enjoy as more specific. Brady, YouTube provides me with the biggest potential audience. Do you agree? It provides me with a bigger audience than anyone else could. I mean, it could provide me with a bigger one mm-hmm. if it was better at its job, I guess. But I would say I agree. It provides me with the biggest audience. Yeah. Other than the fact it has an algorithm that then takes that audience away from me over the years. But <laughs> these are questions that can't be answered simply. No, Brady. It's like you're trapped in Black Mirror. And you have a smiley face that you compress or you have a frowny face that you compress. (laughs) And YouTube's asking you this question and you get to press the smiley face or you get to press the frowny face. (laughs) I mean, YouTube has provided me with millions and millions of people that have been willing to subscribe to my channels. Right. It now denies me access to a lot of those people. (gasps) But fair enough. Everyone (laughs) wants access to them. I have no divine right. That brings us right to the next question. Hmm. Agree or disagree? YouTube is trustworthy. That's an interesting question. Because the people are trustworthy. No, no. The individuals. YouTube is trustworthy. I don't want to say no to that because I feel like I'm then slighting a lot of people who are trustworthy. I understand that feeling. And I know what you mean. And yeah. we have had opportunity to talk to individuals at YouTube. And I feel like at least the people that I have been able to speak to, yeah. I've never felt like any of them are bad, untrustworthy people. All of them seem like good, well-intentioned people, if perhaps not entirely understanding the needs of creators, but like none of them are bad. I don't feel (laughs) like I met someone who had real shifty eyes. I thought like, I don't trust that guy. All right. I'll I'll answer the question. My answer to the question, despite the fact we've carried on about this annotation thing, like it was like the betrayal of by Judas or something. Which it was. When all is said and done, I would fall down on the side of trustworthy. Interesting. Why? I generally trust them. I trust them to do the right thing in Mm. most cases. Sometimes I think they get it wrong. Sometimes I think they get it right. But, you know, we trust them a lot, don't we? Are we actually getting the right percentage of the money they're making from Mm. us? I don't know. I trust that they're doing that. Are they going to shut down tomorrow and delete all my videos? I don't know. I I trust that they're not. But I generally put a lot of trust Mm. in them. And I don't stay awake at night worrying about it. I would say they are trustworthy. They do things that cheese me off. They make decisions that sometimes I think are poor. But, Hmm. you know, there are lots of people in life I trust who make bad Hmm. decisions. It doesn't mean I don't trust them. I think you're selling me on pulling back a little bit from disagree to a merely neutral. Because you've moved the bar (laughs) to some fundamentals of the platform that I, I feel like, yes, I trust that they will do the things that are the basics, that the channel won't disappear, that the videos get uploaded and processed and all the rest of it. I just, I feel very strongly that you can't really trust platforms at all, that this is the fundamental thing that keeps coming up again and again in a million different ways all over the internet is 
new platform comes along and makes promises and everyone says, oh, this one's great. And then surprise, it still has a corporate structure. And ultimately, that corporate structure bends it in ways that you know make the initial people yeah unhappy. like if the question was i can depend on youtube to support me through my career for the rest of all time i probably would disagree with that right okay <laughs> right i like that yeah. phrasing. okay so they have they have a bunch of questions about money right but that basically boils down to one of these questions is youtube provides me the best opportunity to make revenue as a creator and i think everyone in the world can see by the fact that Almost every creator of any size is running merch games and other advertising on their own YouTube videos that this question could not possibly be a more disagree strongly. I mean, I could play with words here again. <laughs> I can feel it coming. I already know what you're going to do. Well, yeah, the obvious one is you talk about merchandise and all the other ways that creators make money, but they wouldn't be able to make any of that money if it wasn't for the exposure of YouTube. Right. We can start leaning on that word opportunity. Yeah. But you're just talking about AdSense here, presumably. Yeah, I'm thinking of AdSense and the YouTube Red subscription yeah. money, which I have a particular bee in my bonnet about over. But yeah, I think that's what I think they mean by this question. Okay, well, the way AdSense works and the way the advertising auctions work aren't optimized for CGP Grey or number file. So, mm -hmm. of course, you know when we take control and do specific deals or have specific ideas and merchandise, of course we can optimize better than the huge online auction that just treats us like fodder. If I had to be charitable to it, the part of this question that I think is good and that is genuinely motivating is YouTube is the place where if you have some success at all, you can start making some money almost immediately. And I think that's really motivating yeah. for new creators. So like, if I'm trying to help them out, that's what I would do, that, you know, you're just someone who started a YouTube channel and as soon as you cross whatever their current arbitrary minimum threshold is, you can start putting AdSense on your videos. And it's like the CPM, you know, the dollars per thousand views that you're going to get on that is very low, but it's immediate and automatic. And like, I do think that's really motivating for new creators. I know that was hugely motivating for me when I started out was being able to see like, I have made a video and I have just directly made some money from it. That really helped in focusing my mind on, oh, maybe YouTube is the path out of this wage slavery that I'm currently <laughs> trapped under. I'm so baffled by this questionnaire. It's almost like, <laughs> basically it seems like there are a bunch of people working at YouTube whose like pay rises or bonuses depend on achieving certain satisfaction levels. It doesn't seem like they want to know what we want to say. It's just like, why ask <laughs> questions like that? Why isn't the question just, how could we help you make more money? I agree with you. I think it feels like there's someone in management who this is like an internal metric. Yeah, they're just wanting to kind of pat themselves on the back with these sort of nebulous questions. I mean, you'll really like the next one then, which is YouTube is the best place to build a fan base. I mean, it's the biggest fan base I have. I look at that question and I think if someone was just interested in playing the influencer game, they just want to be an influencer and they want to have a bunch of fans. I don't know how you could do anything but recommend them to double down on Instagram and put all of their effort there. Do you think? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I think if you want to play that game of 
I am building a fan base, it feels like Instagram is the no-brainer option. That's the way to go right now at this exact moment in time. And that's obviously that's always very fluid. Hmm. So I, I would feel like, no, I can't agree with this as just a general statement. Follow me on Instagram, people. Brady underscore Heron. Yes. Uh, follow me on Instagram as well. I'll be posting any day now. <laughs> I post some good Instagram stories sometimes. That's really interesting that you say that. Are you talking like bang for your buck, obviously? Yeah. I'm 100% talking about probability of success, bang for your buck. You're nobody and you're trying to make yourself into somebody. Where should you put a lot of your effort? Yeah. And I know nothing about your particular skill set. Yeah. Right. Whereas if I know that you were great at making videos, then obviously you'd be an idiot not to focus on YouTube. Oh, so you're saying Instagram requires less talent and less uh, hard work. I'm not saying it's less talent. I'm saying it has two advantages. I think it has a, a like a general audience that is different from YouTube, but people who are like actively looking for new things to follow. Right. Like that seems to be a like a behavior I'm very aware of in my wife when she's on yeah. Instagram. Like she's always looking for more people to follow. Whereas on YouTube, when there's a cool new channel, you're like, damn it, I haven't got time for this. Yeah, there really is that effect. And also I just think on Instagram, you have the possibility to show off a, like a wide variety of other things. It's a less specific skill hmm. than can you film and edit a video in an entertaining or interesting manner. Your audience is less niche and more forgiving of a departure from your usual content. Yes. Yeah. That's a good way to put it as well. Yeah. Here's a question that I enjoyed. <laughs> I understand what YouTube offers creators of various channel sizes. This is definitely an internal tick box process. These questions are getting more and more obviously people trying to justify their jobs and success at what they're doing no but here's the thing i looked at that question and i was like wait a minute youtube offers different channel sized creators different things like i've never heard anything about this nah. what was i supposed to get when i was small what am i supposed to get now that i'm big where's my special <laughs> switches on the dashboard do i have special switches on the dashboard like this one made me feel like i'm missing something disagree right Disagree. <laughs> this was disagree strongly. If there was yeah. a disagree angrily option, I would have totally ticked that. And it's planted this idea in my head that big creators have extra stuff <laughs> that somehow I'm not getting. <laughs> you don't think this is like more of a nod to all like the resources they create? Like, hey, if you're a small creator, here's like 10 points, you know? Use a good thumbnail. Use a catchy title. If that's what they mean, that's not what this question seems to say at all. Uh. <laughs> I interpreted this question as YouTube hands out special goodies to different size channels, and I've got none of them, and now I'm angry. That's how I interpreted this question. I mean, that's an impossible question to answer, because maybe I know 20 things that fit that category, but in fact, there are 100, <laughs> and I didn't know that there were another 80. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they needed to make it clearer what those things were, so you knew if you knew. <laughs> the very next question, with which I could not disagree more strongly or more hard, YouTube offers clear communication, which they then put brackets, easy to understand. <laughs> YouTube offers clear communication, easy to understand. I love that they have brackets <sighs> to clarify this statement, but... It's not even written in a good way. <laughs> like, it's so strange. YouTube offers clear communication, 
Open brackets, easy to understand, close brackets. <laughs> I don't think communication is their strong suit. I'm willing to go with disagree on that one. What about YouTube offers transparent communication? This, too, might be one that's impossible to answer because you don't know what they're not telling you. <laughs> Followed immediately by YouTube clearly communicates how copyright and the content ID work on the service, which can strongly disagree. <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to go with disagree on that. That's a bit of a mess. I don't understand how all the copyright system works and the claims and things like that. I've just been going through something related to this because mm. there's a thing that I'm working on where I've like I've licensed a bit of music and I was, I was just trying to get information ahead of time be like, hey, how can I make sure that licensing this music doesn't totally screw me when this thing goes online? You mean you've paid for someone else's music, like permission yeah, to I use it? Yeah, I paid for someone else's music. Like there was someone who made a song and I was like, hey, can I use this in a thing that I'm making? Yeah. Sure, we exchange money and I have an email agreement. And it's like, yeah. how can I make sure that this doesn't screw me? Like some, yeah, automatic copyright strike or something, yeah. Yeah, either from that artist unintentionally or one of the many troll places that just you know sucks up a whole bunch of music that isn't registered to anyone and says oh it's all ours give us the ad revenue yeah so that was not fun and nah. also not clear <laughs> like i still don't have a good answer to that i'm i'm very happy to disagree with that the copyright system on youtube you know partly for reasons that aren't their fault but partly for reasons that are their fault is very perplexing i will give them that point that yeah. they're in a tough situation yeah. and it's obviously it's very hard but it just, it really makes everybody furious. Yeah. So there, there were a bunch of questions all about how YouTube communicates. The one that I gave them an agree on, which I was like, I'll give this one to you, YouTube. Whatever person whose internal ratings I'm slaughtering with my six strongly disagrees in a row. <laughs> yeah. I will give you an agree on YouTube gives timely updates on changes that could impact me solely because of the heads up they gave me about removing those annotations. It's like, you know what? They told me a month ahead of time. I had plenty of time to prepare. I can give you an agree on that one. I do tend to ignore them because there's, you know, it becomes noise and you don't know what to ignore and what is important. But don't let you know beforehand. Okay, here's a couple quick ones here. All right. YouTube inspires me to keep improving. Hmm, no. That's like saying the road inspires me to keep <laughs> driving. The road is just what I have to drive on. Right. Yeah. YouTube makes it fun to be a creator. You know what? I mean, just before the recent VidCon in London, they hosted an event, EduCon, mm -hmm. and they got all the educational YouTubers together and they put on what I thought was quite a nice couple of days for us. And they've done other mm -hmm. things in the past. I think YouTube does more than it has to in that respect. They make you feel good for a day. You know, they give you some free drinks and they put you in a nice room and they organize a nice event. And... They send you these buttons and sometimes they send you a gift. I actually just got, I got a Christmas gift from them. That was quite nice, like a personalized sort of suitcase thing. Mm -hmm. You know, they do okay in that. They do make you sometimes feel a little bit more important than you are. They make you feel like a bit of a star for a day sometimes. I'm going to give them that. So now I've skipped over one where I would recategorize this, which is YouTube makes me feel part of the creator community. Yeah. And having just been off the back of EduCon in London and they did one of these out in LA. Yeah. Like I, I completely agree. That is a thing that YouTube doesn't need to do at all. And especially for our little corner of the internet, it's really great to be invited to those things. Yeah. It's really great to be able to 
talk to and hang out with a bunch of people who you don't get to see very often. And people from YouTube as well, you know, pick their brains. Yeah, like there's people from YouTube there who are talking to us and like telling us what they're up to. And like genuinely, because there there have been a couple of years where YouTube hasn't done those EDU meetups in the past. And I feel like those years were very different years where it's like, oh, there was never a time to meet up with everybody. And it's just helpful when an, when an organization like YouTube says, we're hosting this thing, everyone come. That crystallizes people into coming. So I will give them that. And like you said, because they really don't need to do it for EDU creators. We're a very small corner of YouTube. Yeah. It's very nice that they do it. And I'm really appreciative that they do. Yeah. So I will give it to them for there. But I'm not going to give it to YouTube makes it fun to be a creator. That to me is too close to all the corporations are like, isn't it fun to work at Amazon? Like, no, I come here because it's work. Uh, You know, I come here because you pay me and this is work. This is what we do here. There's also one. There's a question here, which I actually like. And I want to get it on the record as well that I strongly disagree with this one. And it is breaking through on YouTube has become more difficult over the last few years. I really strongly disagree with that one. I think people can still break through on YouTube. This is kind of like a, an argument that always happens between creators. I feel like if, if you come to YouTube and you're doing something interesting I think it might even be easier now to build up an audience than it used to be. I would need to see data because certainly there's more and more people coming through. There seems to be more of them in volume, but I don't know how many people are trying. If it's Mm. been 20% more superstar channels, but 400% more people are trying, then it is harder. There certainly seems to be plenty of people coming through and always new people having success. And, you know, I'll always go along to something like VidCon or EduCon and meet a whole bunch of people I'd never even heard of who have become massively successful. Right. So I think, gosh, there must be millions of them out there. But I don't know how many people are trying. I don't know how many failures there are on the scrap heap for all these self-selecting successful people who I'm exposed to because they're successful. Yeah, It's interesting that you mentioned that because surely YouTube has data on this. Like, actually, this is suddenly occurs to me it's a strange question to have on the survey unless they're just trying to get the impression of people yeah the sentiment yeah yeah but it's like they must know they must know the answer to this question yeah however it is they want to measure it i feel like maybe you're right yeah it, again this is totally anecdotal hmm. but even just with my own viewing habits of like I, I feel like i've stumbled across smaller channels that seem to have gotten bigger pretty fast hmm. not even channels that are like of mainstream interest but just like it, it seems like people are able to pick up subscribers and do well in a in a way that I think might even be easier than it used to be. By catering to niches, isn't it? Yeah. I went to VidCon in London for one day, and one of the only talks I went to was by the chap who makes the low spec gamer channel, and mm-hmm. he did a talk all about niches and how you can be successful by really focusing on a niche rather than trying mm. to have broad appeal. It was a really good talk. It was really good. Very clever. One of the few talks I've been to where every time I thought of a question or a problem with the argument, that was the next point that was made. Hmm. And that made me realize, yeah, because the audience is so big now on YouTube, if you're smart and concentrate on a niche and don't try to be PewDiePie, you can have a quite happy and successful existence. That's partly what I think of it as well is how many people are able to make a full-time living on YouTube? Hmm. I mean, this is where going back to the revenue thing, like, I think people make that transition when they start bringing on sponsors to the channel or like, or they start up a Patreon or they start up something else. Like that's, that's usually when people make 
the transition, but you need to have a big enough audience for that to work. Hmm. And I feel like the whole ecosystem on and around YouTube allows a person with a smaller audience yeah. than five years ago to make the transition into being a full-time person. Because the audience has passed like a critical mass of massiveness. And also the thing with the niches is just YouTube has expanded so tremendously much yeah. that there's room for a whole bunch of other things. Like something that actually came up a, a number of times at the EDU conference was talking to people about how say five years ago in EDU land, in theory, if you wanted to, you could be pretty much caught up to date on almost everybody's channel yeah. in the EDU world. Yeah. And even now, just within the already small category of education on YouTube, even just within the number of people they had at the conference, yeah. it'd be like a full-time job keeping oh. track of what is everybody up to. I thought it yeah. was interesting to see that there are more like niche education channels that are able to do things full-time. So, yeah. I'm going to strongly disagree with it's harder than it used to be. Yeah. YouTube does a good job distributing my new videos to my subscribers. I disagree with that. Why do you disagree with that, Brady? <laughs> well, unless my subscriber number's wrong, like obviously not all of my subscribers are getting my videos. And in fact, I see that in data. When I look at my viewing numbers and you see the percentage of people watching who are your subscribers and who are not your subscribers, that's like skewing more and more to the non-subscribers. Like, so mm -hmm. not only are the view numbers like holding solid or sometimes falling, the number of those people who are subscribers is falling as well. And right. it's yeah. quote marks strangers who are watching my videos more than subscribers. I'm happy for both. But if the question is, are they distributing my videos to my subscribers? The answer to that is no, they're not. And fair enough. You know, if that's the way they think it should work, I have to accept that. That's like the rules of the game. And I don't think they're picking on me specifically, but they're mm -hmm. sure as heck not showing all my subscribers my videos. My number one and forever case for this will always be PewDiePie, who's got 80 million subscribers at this point. Yeah. And his, his videos for years have been getting around the same view numbers. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. in the past several years, he's tremendously increased in subscriber numbers, but suspiciously the view numbers are always like 2 million, 3 million, 4 million, 10 million. Yeah. Like they're always in that range. The subscriber count has become, you know, we, we have this discussion all the time, but in the last sort of six months to a year, it's become like just a crazy meaningless number. It's totally meaningless, but here's the thing. I was thinking about this today. It's a bit like YouTube removing the annotations. Hashtag yeah. never forget. But... With what's happened to the subscribers, I feel like I just today kind of made a mental piece with it, which is YouTube has sort of screwed over creators who have been on the platform for a long time with the way subscribers used to be, and then slowly changing that out from under us. Hmm. But if we start the universe at time zero right now and say, how does this system work? and say there's two levels, there's a button which indicates that you are interested in this channel, and there's another button which says, notify me every time this channel does everything. Yeah. That's not a bad division. Contingent upon, there will not be bell inflation. That 
two years from now, there's not a super bell, which really notifies you every time. And the regular bell mostly notifies you, right? It's like, as long as we don't have an inflationary curve, I don't think that's the worst system. Nah, you'd have the same problem. You'd have the same problem within five years where people have switched on the notification for too many channels and it just builds up like a gunk, a backlog on their account. And they have like a little hack in their brain where even though I've switched on notifications for 800 channels, these are the 10 channels I still like. And then suddenly that notification number would be the inflated number that we get upset about. You'd be starting this new problem again, just under a different name. This is the question about the trustworthiness of YouTube. I don't trust YouTube to not do bell inflation, that there's going to be another super notification method in the future. Is that YouTube's fault? Isn't this a problem with human nature? Oh, 100%. This is a human problem. And the reason that I don't trust YouTube is because it will always be true that people are terrible and don't know what they want. Yeah. And so people are always going to overbell themselves. Yeah. And it will always be true that YouTube can come in and say, hey, if you let us algorithmically bell you, bro, yeah. you will use YouTube more. And so I don't think YouTube will be able to resist that temptation two or three years down the road when some manager needs to get his numbers up for the quarter. Right. And then they'll be like, well, we're going to algorithmically bell you. Yeah, you're right. Because I can hear certain people saying to me, our job here at YouTube is to give people what they want, even when they don't know it. Like, you know, we've got to kind of second guess them. We've got to help them, like hold their hand. And that could be taken as like a lovely thing they're doing, a service to the viewing community. Or it could be taken as pushing people around, taking control and not letting people just figure things out for themselves. And the reason it irritates creators is I've, I've seen more and more channels not even mention anything about subscribe to me. I've seen more and more channels just jump straight to the bell. They say, hit the bell. All right. And they don't talk about subscriptions. Mm. And this is the same thing with annotations where if there's a super bell in the future, you know, there's a holler horn and you got to hit the holler horn. People are going to look dumb for saying bell me, bro. Yeah. And if YouTube can hold the line and just let there be a place where people can make decisions that YouTube knows full well aren't aren't even in their own interest about overbelling themselves, then I would agree with the sentiment YouTube does a good job of distributing my videos to people because they would show up in the notifications if they hit the bell and the subscribe button is more like a thumbs up, I'm interested in this channel button. Yeah, That would be fine. But again, I think the reason so many longer term creators feel really burned by this is because the rules were changed. But if we start now as like, day zero i think i can agree with this system but then i can also see two years from now being furious again because they've introduced the super bell yeah okay final question my favorite question yes or no have you heard anything from or about youtube in the past 90 days yes no not sure (laughs) (laughs) yes i love this question because it's so perplexing like what have i heard anything from or about youtube in the past 90 days i almost feel like you would have to go to like an uncontacted tribe in brazil you're the only person in the world who has half a chance of answering no to that question (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, but it's like anyone hasn't heard something about YouTube in the past 90 days. Uh. It's like, have you heard anything about Hollywood in the past 90 <laughs> days? It's like, yeah, yeah. Everyone in the industrialized world is going to say yes to that question. Have you used electricity in the last 90 days? Yeah, it's crazy. And so it's like, I click yes, and then this is this is the best. Yeah. What have you heard? Question mark. <laughs> I just give you a box. <laughs> Type in, what have you heard? What have you <laughs> like, heard? Well, YouTube, I hear there's another adpocalypse on the horizon. That's what I've heard. <laughs> Where do I start? I just send them a link to a few Hello Internet episodes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I just, I love that. It's like the weirdest open-ended question in the world. What have you heard? Oh, I've heard a lot, YouTube. I've heard a lot about you. And also, bear in mind, this is a survey for, like, professional YouTube creators. It's I not know! Like, it's not like they've gone to, like, an old folks' home to ask them if they've ever heard of YouTube. They're asking people who, like, make YouTube videos for a living. Yeah. It's like, especially in a community where, like, a huge portion of the industry is gossip about the industry. <laughs> oh, dear. Is there anyone who's doing this survey who could possibly click no? Or even better yet click not sure i'm not sure if i've heard anything about youtube in the past 90 days what's the point of this question is this question like the equivalent of someone saying you know ah so uh did they say anything about me did i come up at all that's why i love this i think it totally feels like that especially with the way it's phrased what have you heard question mark it completely feels like what were people saying about me at the party after i left that's yeah. like that's what youtube is asking yeah <laughs> So needy, YouTube. So needy. I seriously hope the people at YouTube don't listen to this podcast, but... <laughs> oh, I hope they do. I hope they do, Brady. Really? Hi, Susan. I know you're listening. <laughs>